Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Over the past few episodes, we focused largely on crypto native trading businesses. We met some amazing entrepreneurs with the expertise to help their investors gain exposure to digital assets. Today, we shift our attention to on chain infrastructure as the enabler and catalyst for financial inclusion globally. The subject of this episode is one of the most exciting projects I've come across in recent months, one that truly conveys the transformative power of fintech and on-chain banking to increase the standards of living and economic development worldwide. What Web3 and DeFi deliver almost out of the box is the ability to spin up all the building blocks for an end-to-end digital bank complete with payment, settlement, lending, and trading primitives, all with utmost transactional transparency and integrity. This is vastly underestimated by most crypto skeptics who argue that crypto is a solution in search of a problem. Well, it turns out we have a problem to solve, and that is financial inclusion in Africa. Let me provide some context. Africa has a population of 1.4 billion people, which is expected to grow to 2.5 billion people in 2050. It's the fastest growing demographic in the world. Yet over 700 million people on the continent remain unbanked. Bank fees as a percentage of disposable income are a multiple of what they are in other markets. Access to physical branches is for the most part impossible, all resulting in a stifling lack of competition and innovation. My guest today, Cédric Janot, is on a mission to change that. A serial entrepreneur and cybersecurity expert, he and his partners founded B Financial Group, an investment holding firm focused on emerging markets back in 2019. Having spent most of his childhood in Africa, Cédric understands firsthand the opportunity, the challenges, and mostly the local dynamics and nuances. After trying to convince incumbent financial institutions to adopt this technology to better serve the unbanked, Cédric ultimately decided to take the matter in his own hands. He and his team developed and rolled out a multi-currency payment system for individuals and businesses, available from an app in the palm of their hand, all built on-chain using DeFi primitives. The service called B-Mobile Africa, or BMA, launched in May 2020 with three goals. Number one, lift 100 million people out of poverty. Number two, offer a high quality banking experience. And number three, become the largest bank in Africa and cover every country in the continent. By April 2021, BMA was already turning a profit and has been on an upward trajectory ever since. This should be no surprise given Cédric's pedigree as an entrepreneur. Before BMA, he successfully built a privacy, a cybersecurity solution for data and messaging in the financial industry. His academic credentials are equally impressive. He holds a PhD in computer science from the University of Louisville and completed his undergrad in mathematics and computer science at the University of Montpellier in France. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm uh, actually French by background, so I was born in France, but very young at the age of four, I actually ended up in Africa. So uh, my dad has a job there. So we essentially moved to Africa for a couple of years. And growing up until I was 18, essentially I was back and forth between Europe and Africa, different countries. So, I mean, tough as a kid because you have to change school and change friends all the time. Obviously a blessing as an adult looking back because it gave me a, obviously, different worldview than most people. And it really feels like home. Like, I feel comfortable in both places. If I'm in France or if I'm in Gabon in West Africa, it, I'm, I really have this thing where one doesn't feel like, yeah, it just feels like home. So I, I spent a fair amount of um, time in Africa in kind of two to three year chunk uh, increment. And, uh, and then I went to school in, in the UK, the, the, the US, 
for grad school and ended up living in Canada. There is this lore of entrepreneurs who, as little kids, would, I don't know, sell lemonade on the in their backyard to neighbors. Or were you enterprising as a kid? Did you already see the merit of buying something for cost and then selling it with a margin or trying to solve some problems? Or were you more like a, a bookworm? What kind of kid were you growing up? It's a good question. So I guess my first answer is now was not. But then if you think about it, I kind of was. So the it's more kind of personal characteristic. Like I like everything that is like ex- extreme sport. I have like a very high pain tolerance. I'm very stubborn. It's a lot of like, you know, I always like to kind of take stuff apart and rebuild them, like problem solving skills. You know, I was, I'm very good at Rubik's Cube and I'm very good at Lego. And so I didn't really see this as entrepreneurship because as a kid, I guess I didn't even know that that kind of existed. But I guess I was in my own way, but I just never thought of it as a, as a job or as, you know, I always do that. I always knew I wanted to do something with computers and mathematics. The rest was essentially, I was like, just get me out of the school system. If I can just do math and computer science all day, I'll be happy. Um, but I never really thought of myself as a business guy or was trying to, you know, run a company. I guess I was just not exposed to it. And then later on, it, it came that, you know, personal characteristic made me a very good entrepreneur because you need to have a high pain tolerance. You need to be stubborn and uh, you need to really not care what other people think of you. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I always go back. There's a, one of my favorite clips, YouTube clips is uh, from the movie, The Founder of uh, McDonald's, where he uh, he talks about persistence. That's very helpful. So in terms of the studies, did you eventually gravitate towards more math-inclined disciplines? I mean, obviously, you have a PhD in computer science, but even you know, middle school, high school, did it validate that you had an aptitude towards numbers and science, or were you very much sort of a multidiscipline kind of student? So I, um, because I, I studied the French curriculum as a kid, uh, French curriculum is unlike the U.S., or the British school, you have to do like a bunch of stuff. Like it's required to do philosophy. It's required to do music. It's required to do a lot of stuff. So as a kid, I had good grades, but I didn't have excellent grades um, because a lot of the things were not that, like music is great, sure, but it's just not my interest. But I have to do it and I have to get a grade on it. So as up to high school, I was an okay student. Um, but then when I went to university where now it's specialized, now you can pick the stuff then I was on the honor list all the time because essentially in university, I could pick the stuff. Sure, you you always have one or two classes that you have to take, but the concept was I can just do math and computer science. And so that's where it became quite fun and where I became an excellent student because for me, it didn't feel like school. It's kind of fun. I I like that. Nobody's telling me, oh, you have to learn philosophy when I'm a math-inclined person. And I don't, I mean, it's great to have exposure on philosophy, but it's just, you know, I'd rather do it one hour a week, not 10 hours a week. Things really happened for me in terms of skill set and skill building post high school and into the university years. So in terms of career, did you work in between uh, your undergraduate studies and your PhD or did you go straight into the PhD program? So first, I even did the, I didn't even do a bachelor. I just picked the best uh, degree I could find, which for becoming a programmer, which at the time was a two year degree. And I just say, I'm going to do, you know, that I'm going to learn how to program and I'm just going to get out of school and just start working because once again, the high school years didn't give me a good experience or at least a good flair of what school was. 
Then after two years, I was like, oh, it's pretty good at that stuff. I may do a third year. Okay, I did a third year, and that was a bachelor. And now I got this scholarship to go to, to grad school in the U.S. So I was like, well, I always wanted to go to America. End up doing a, you know, a master. And now this is already way past my time. You know, I should be gone and go working. And then they're like, well, actually, your master is very good. You know, we'll give you a scholarship for a PhD. So I'm like, okay, let's do a PhD. So I became an accidental kind of, you know, PhD guy. Um, but in every single, um, I guess, section, yes, I worked during the summer uh, because, well, you got to pay for the bill. And two, I was able to pick, you know, the, the thesis or the other stuff that were in line with, with things that I liked, which in my case was like cybersecurity. And and so once again, it, I, didn't, I didn't say, oh, I want to go to a PhD. If, if you have told me at 18 years old, you're going to get a PhD, I'll be like, yeah, right. I wanted to get out of school as soon as possible, but then, you know, coincidences and things made it that, uh, yeah, I ended up uh, <laughs> with a lot of degrees. You really are an expert in cybersecurity. Cryptography bodes well for for what you've been working on, you know, since then. You know, your career progression again was was heavily entrepreneurial, right? I mean, you founded a company that addressed the cybersecurity needs of an industry, the financial services industry, that are very stringent, right, from a regulatory standpoint, but also the notion of fiduciary responsibility over um, assets, something that lost in translation over the past year in some corners of the crypto industry is very important. So can you talk to us a little bit about how eventually you got into starting a cybersecurity business from studying it, learning it, and then actually applying it? Yeah, so I, I did a, my dissertation was a, on, on this thing called data-centric security. And, and the whole concept back then was um, if you wanted to have security, you had to put your data into a secure application. So uh, I don't know, like you, you have a, you wanted to, you had to be secure on your phone, you had to use BlackBerry. You wanted to be able to be secure on an app, you have to use this specific app, which is your secure vault. And my thesis at the time was that you can't force people to do that because people are people and they're just going to find a way around it. So it doesn't matter how good your security is, you just can't fight people. And so if people are going to use whatever they want, can we have the security injected inside the data that you're trying to protect? So it will be secure independently of which application it is. Meaning, instead of using Hotmail versus Gmail, because one is more secure than the other, can I just secure the email itself and I don't really care what's using it? So this became what's now called as data-centric security. And I really like that stuff, did my, my PhD on it, ended up getting a patent on the research work that I've done. And I was like, great, cool, it's good for my ego, but I'm going to go get a job. And when, when I graduated, there was two kind of job for me. Uh, the kind of government type work, but I was in the US, not a US citizen, kind of good clearance. And in the very large corporate, like the Microsoft of the world. And for some reason, what I do like Microsoft as a company, I didn't feel like going to work there because I was like, I'm going to be one guy into millions of people. I'm just going to be a member and I'm just going to do research and it's not going to be like, practical enough. So, well, so I ended up with no job. So then I started to a company to commercialize my uh, my research and that's it was purely accidental and that's how the first company started and we ended up securing banks and government around the world. And as you think about what you've embarked on today, what do you think really prepared you? I mean, this was I think you were doing this for over a decade, right? Building that cybersecurity business. 
So presumably you and, and your co-founders at the time probably learned a lot on the job and developed as both entrepreneurs, but also executives in, in running a business, you know, where the stakes were pretty high, right? Correct. So the, the good thing with cybersecurity is you have, it's extremely challenging intellectually because for you to be successful, you have to block the hackers 100% of the time. But for them to be successful, they have to break your defenses once. So it's very asymmetric. So if you like a challenge, that's <laughs> as good as it gets. Um, now, when we, we did the business, we started with government, eventually migrated to securing banks. It gave us a very good view on how banks, which you know arguably are, are a very important part of the economy because that's what keeps people's money, operate, especially large banks. Because you, you know, when, you, when you look at it from the security standpoint, you think logical. And then you, re- you realize there's this thing called compliance, there's this thing called bureaucratic process, procurement and then you realize that there's a machine behind it and it's not just oh the best technology win you got to be able to sell it they have to be able to deploy it because otherwise it's a great product that nobody's using and then that's where you realize that banks are pretty inefficient as organization and so when we exited that business as as you mentioned it was a an overnight success eight years in the making and we ended up launching a digital bank ourselves we we did learn about all the things that made the bank inefficient or actually not so efficient. And when we built ours, it was huge learning because we could see it from both sides of the of the coin as opposed to just someone who walked inside the bank and they only see internal or someone who's just external and don't see how it works internally. So we had a very good view of how is it that we should build a bank to make it efficient. Makes sense. And I think there's no better preparation than than having it done once, even though it's a different vertical, but having a different vantage point. But at the same time, also, I'm assuming operationally some skills that develop over time as far as like, what does it take to really run a business well? And um, it takes different skills or different approaches when you're five people than, you know, when you start growing and, and experiencing hyper growth. So in 2019, you decide to start B Financial Group, which is an investment holding company. Can you talk a little bit about that as the genesis of what then, you know, incubated B-Mobile? So the first company is called A-Privacy, the cybersecurity company. I was the sole founder and essentially I um, had some early employee who became, you know, they are early employee, but they were more like partner level type in terms of what they did. And um, and had early backers, a couple of angel guys, and one in particular, which, which had outsized influence positively on the business. So when we exited the business in 2019, we obviously ended up with a little bit more time, a little bit more money. And um, the CFO of my previous company became the second partner of, of this B Financial Group. And the first investor of, of A Privacy became, became the partner. So there was the three of us. And the mandate was to say, look, we, we understand technology well. Technology is not going anywhere. What we should do is we should use our financial resources to either invest in certain companies or create companies in certain vertical where we think it has like legs and essentially grow the business until you know it gets to a certain scale and then put professional management or maybe selling it and doing this across different sectors. And one of the, the, the first use case was let's go, because I grew up in Africa and had some emotional connection to the, to the continent and I always wanted to do something there, and I always wanted to do like financial inclusion. I was like, well, there are three ways to do financial inclusion, finance, education, and healthcare. I don't know anything about education and healthcare, but finance, we know a little bit. So let's try to take that as the first use case. And 
the first company that the B Financial Group will launch will be a digital bank for low-income people in Africa. And that was really the concept. And then eventually we launched way multiple businesses over the years. But the very first was, let's use our resources. We'll be the seed capital. We'll be the operator. We'll do the heavy work until it gets to a business that has value that someone else can do the scale. Like we'll have to be in the building stage. And, uh, and then the rest is history. Tell me a little bit about the initial thesis behind the specific financial inclusion venture, right? I mean, first of all, it's something that you cared deeply about. And we've had this conversation in our prior calls where to you, yes, it was a matter of making money and being successful, but in a way that would help others. But talk to me about the purpose, but also the business thesis. How did you think about that market and what specific solution did you think you were bringing to problems in that market? So you're absolutely right. It, to me, it is personal. This is not a business or it's just like, if I didn't have to work, I'll still do this. Um, and, and this is half personal, half half kind of market conditions. But obviously, I've been lived in, in kind of five different African countries, East, West, South, Indian Ocean over my life. I get a, a good view of what the African continent is like, because let's not forget that it's we're talking 54 different countries. So it's not just one homogeneous thing it's not like the u.s where it's a market and whether you live in texas or new york it's give or take the same no it's very very different but the the underlying current is look there are a lot of clever and good people everywhere and there are millions of those in africa but they don't have the right opportunities or structure around them to really be the best version of themselves and there is nothing others than the fact that they were born in this specific place at this specific time. So it has nothing to do with how hard you work, how good of a person you are. And so I thought, well, that's that's bloody stupid. Number one, there's a lot of good people and a lot of brain power that could be used. Number two, the reason why in this situation has nothing to do with them, so why should they be penalized? Number three, we keep talking about technology being the great equalizer. Well, that maybe it's time to kind of apply it. And so the concept of launching a bank was if you launch banking operation and you start banking people who are currently unbanked, you have as a tool probably the, the, the best tool you can get in really moving them out of, you know, like upgrading their quality of life and, and, and everything else. Because once people don't realize that once it's very expensive to be poor, if you are low income and you don't have access to a proper bank account, Everything you do is far more expensive because you have to use kind of like informal ways of doing things. So for us, it was like, well, we want to solve financial inclusion. Why do we do that? We do it via a bank. And then we walk back into how do we build a bank that will actually do this and make money? Because if we don't make money, then at some point we, we just got out of business and then it's not going to help anybody. And we made the purposeful decision to, to launch that business as a for profit with purpose as opposed to a foundation or non-for-profit, because the goal was to say, we're going to show people that we can run a highly efficient business that makes a lot of money and that also do good. And that you don't have to do, choose one or the other. Like you don't have to do something else to just make money or it's just for the NGOs to kind of do low income. You can do both. This is a great vision to start a business because to your point about technology being an equalizer, I think that sort of got lost. You know, especially in the, around the existential debate of, of blockchain and crypto, we have first world problems 
Um, you know, a lot of, of people are not really necessarily in need of solutions because they don't have this access problem. They have access to a lot of financial services. You know, we all get multiple loan products in the mail or email every week. We have access to mortgages. We are, we take for granted that we can just bank, you know, heck, I haven't carried cash in my wallet in so long now. And so you contrast that with um, a continent where it's really getting away of the inherent ingenuity and creativity of the people there. And what you're trying to do is unleash the potential. And I say this not as lip service, it's really dawned on me as I was, you know, listening to you, but like learning about the opportunity that I come back into one thing you said, you said the only difference is where they were born and the time they were born. That's incredible, right? But I look at it as glass uh, half full because I see this as opportunity. So what capital did you start with? I mean, starting a business is, is never cheap. Uh, it's gone cheaper over the years, but you're also talking about a business that's not just, hey, let's roll out an app. It's a bank. Uh, talk to us about how you got started and where did you get the capital from? So in, in all the businesses that I've built, uh, I've never raised any third-party capital. So while, or at least institutional capital, angel, friends and family, and that's about it. So even though I will say our team is pretty senior at running, you know, 20 country large-scale operation we are like kids when it comes to fundraising so on this specific one we tried around when we had the concept and we say we're going to do this bank whatever uh we we asked a few people and they just thought we were crazy because number one if you do anything in africa it, it's it was true back then it's still true today you start with a discount people just assume that it's kind of like b c tier market and why would you do that when you can build something in the US? They don't understand that it actually has its own specificity and its own, like the market is massive. I mean, where are you going to find a billion customer in a market? It doesn't exist, right? And then where are you going to find a billion customers that are under the age of 25, that are really keen on technology? I mean, there's a lot of things that makes it a very good market on its own, but in, in a lot of people's mind, especially VC slash people who are traditional investors in, in, in technology, it's a discount. So that didn't go on. Then we went to talk to banks with the approach that, look, you keep telling us about ESG and financial inclusion and you want to do well, blah, blah, blah. And the only reason you're not doing the unbanked is because you don't have the right technology and it's too costly for you. We'll build the technology and give it to you. Do you want it? Ah, well, actually, they realize it's just lip service. They don't care. Um, banks in those markets are trying to do the least amount of work uh, and trying to make the most amount of money. So they go up the value chain, not down. Which is why, I mean, financial inclusion is nothing new. I mean, this was way before even I was born. And we've spent, I don't know, as a society, hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, is the situation better now than it was like 100 years ago? Yes, but is it that much better? Probably not. So there's this. everybody agrees that it needs to be sold, but nobody's really kind of tackling it. And the funds are not really, you have a lot of money going, but it may not be, going to the right place so with that said we uh said okay we'll finance the thing ourselves because if it goes past it's our risk but also it's just not financeable people not gonna because it's too keep in mind that you know we are trying to build a financial inclusion bank at the scale of a continent which is 54 countries like try to just do a financial inclusion bank in the u.s will be a big job usually you'll go oh, i'm going just a single country like let's say just south africa and I'm doing just payment. And I'm coming and I'm saying, no, 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 no. We're going to do payment, lending, savings, full on suite, low income. 
at scale, day one. So people just thought it was it was crazy. So we had to finance it ourselves until we got to actually realizing the vision. People realized, okay, this is obviously we still have got the it's too good to be true, but it eventually you can argue with data, right? So but we, we bankrolled the whole thing and to this day we haven't raised any third party capital. That's an amazing story. And so I'm assuming there's financial wherewithal built into the project. You generated some profits and were able to break even on the operation relatively quickly, right? So first we had to, because it's our money and, and luckily for us, we, we have some, but you know, we don't have a ton either. It was, how do we get cash flow positive as soon as possible? Because then you're out of the danger zone and you got time to buy. Now, Essentially, that's a fairly easy equation. You're going to lower your cost as low as you can, and you're going to increase your revenue as much as you can. And somewhere in between, the math kind of should work. So lowering the cost, it's important for, for cost of operation, but it's also it's important because if we don't have a low enough cost, we will have to charge money for the product, which is too high for our end consumer. I'm not selling private bank ultra high network. I'm selling people living on $2 a day or less. So reducing the cost is how building the bank in a way that was cost efficient was the, the very, very first thing. And then we realized, okay, if we can automate a lot of the things, our cost of running is very low. Can we keep it startup wise to some extent? Because there are things that you can't compress like compliance, anti-money laundering, you have to do it. And then if we can do that, what is the price point or what is the type of revenue that we can generate that will cover the cost? So we, we essentially built it backward. And then that's how we kind of run it. And luckily for us, we were able to yeah turn a profit within the first year of operation with no third-party capital, which is kind of unheard of in, in an industry where anybody close to us has raised 30, 50, 100, 200 million dollars. And so when we think about the aspects of this business, you're saying, oh, if I were to launch this in, in the US today, if you think about all the considerations from an institutional and regulatory standpoint, right? Licenses, you know, the law in various states, federal regulation, a whole framework that you have to abide by would be incredibly punitive from a capital standpoint. And then there are some of the underlying operational and technology considerations, uh, which ties into using DeFi building blocks. You're able to roll out not just one set of primitives, but a portfolio of primitives. I wouldn't say completely out of the box, but relatively quickly versus having to build everything from the ground up. Let's go through those two aspects. One is the institutionalization of the business. Can you help us get an idea of how different that is within the African continent? And what did you have to juggle and navigate there? And then we can talk about keeping the cost base low Obviously, you have to make very wise decisions as to how to architect what you are going to build this on. So let's start with the first one on the institutional side. If you build something in the U.S., you already have a fair amount of infrastructure. You have ACH payment network. You have Visa Rails. You, you have a lot of stuff that already exists. And essentially, if you build things in the U.S., if you do it well, you should be able to couple a couple of Lego blocks together and have something that kind of works. In the case of Africa... You don't have any Lego blocks. So before you even build a castle, you got to build the Lego blocks. So it's like, I have to start a brick factory to make bricks to even build a house. That's that's the level of complexity. And then the, the regulation is sometimes even worse because in the US, you may or may not like it, 
but at least it's clear what it is. In a lot of the emerging market, Africa and others, it's not really clear. If you ask 10 people, you're going to get 11 opinions. So it's very hard to be at the cutting edge of innovation because people can't put you in a box. And so things like, let's say, getting a license in a specific country, the only thing the license does for you, it gives you the right to operate. You still have to operate after. But sometimes they're like, well, we don't know. So a country will tell you, okay, go. This one will be like, well, I want you to get this license. But then they realize midway through the application that actually you cannot really apply because that's not really what you do. And there's a lot of education also in the emerging market in terms of blockchain, crypto, and bitcoins are not the same thing. It's not one thing. One is a technology, the other one, you know, so, so the the ramp up is a lot harder. Now, the plus side is once you've done all this painful work, because people need it and they have no other solution, they'll be far more likely to use it. Because for them, they don't see it as a gimmick or a marketing trick. It's like, I'm trying to send money to the village. Either I drive, it costs me X. I use Western Union, it costs me Y. Or I try you guys, I've never seen you, but you are 10 times cheaper. So I'll give it a try. So what you spend on compliance, education, infrastructure, regulatory there is, is way more than the US. But what you win in goodwill of people giving it a shot is a lot. I don't have to spend millions of dollars in marketing. To this day, we've been in business for two and a half years. I don't even know if we spent a thousand dollars in marketing, US. Like until two months, we didn't even have marketing person. We don't have salespeople. It's all word of mouth. So that's the plus of operating in those businesses, but you still have to build a thing, operate it, and navigate the local context. How do you establish a rapport with rulers and regulators? How do you go about doing it? I mean, I, I understand you obviously have a high sensitivity and understanding of the market. Did you have pre-existing relationships? that you could tap into? How did you go about building this connective tissue with the institutional side? So I understand how they think, which helps me explain it in a way that the information can be absorbed and relatable. I didn't have any prior contact, but I just don't take no for an answer. So eventually they'll have to see you. Um, so, uh, and, and keep in mind that it's in some countries it's easier than others because you have uh, some countries a bit more cocky or they think they know better. In, in other countries, it's a little bit easier because whatever Singapore does or whatever the UK does, they tend to follow. So then there's a, there's a benchmark. And in other countries, sometimes you have to go all the way to the government at the minister level or, or head of state level to say, look, I'm not from your country. I'm bringing tens of millions of dollars of equipment and technology here to do your low income because, you know, you don't have a solution. I don't want anybody for it. Because most of it, you know, 99% of people don't, won't even pay for it. Can I get a meeting with X? And if you do this long enough, eventually they realize, yeah, I mean, those guys are literally, at first they're like a bit dubious because like, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Then they realize, well, everything those, those guys have done so far stand by that mandate to really do financial inclusion. And they're clearly not in marketing. They're not, you know, they are on the ground in the village deploying the solution. So then you do get the meeting, but it, it does take multiple meetings to build rapport because a lot of those government see a lot of those guys who essentially just go see them to try to pitch a specific product or there's an angle. And so when you come, they discount you right away. And then it takes a couple of you know months and, and actions for them to say, okay, now those guys are running a proper business. They're really trying to make a difference. And then 
Now they want to work with you. So then it becomes a lot easier. So now you become a, a more of an informal advisor. On, Look, we've done it this way because this is a limitation. And, and now they want to learn and that will inform their kind of future judgment. But the first year is painful because people don't know you and they're like, what is the guy doing here? And it sounds the same. And, and there's such a knowledge gap that that's why in some markets, we take market. So the way we've done it is you have the obviously big market like the South Africa, the Nigeria, the Kenya, and you have the small niche market. And we went niche because we could be a big fish in a small pond where people will give you the time. And then we went back to, which once again, counterintuitive, right? If you ask Silicon Valley VC, take the biggest market. I can give you a thousand reasons why this is a wrong approach in Africa. And so we've done it the opposite and we've proven that being niche is actually a good thing and eventually went back to the bigger market. Now you go and you say, I've already run payment for you know $20 million in volume in this country. Can I get an audience? Sure, they'll talk to me. You can never escape the entrepreneurial hustle. Right. And that's one lesson. You know, you talk to any entrepreneur. I've been one. I talk to entrepreneurs every day. It is a grind. You said persistence at the beginning of the conversation, not wanting to take no as an answer. It's the persistence of trying to get in the door. Would you say it is easier to get their attention at the institutional level and the ruler level over there or equally difficult because of its own set of complexity than if you were doing it in a more developed market? I will say both are hard, but not for the same reason. So in in Africa or in, in a lot of emerging markets, you also have in some countries very high corruption. So the people that you have to deal with sometimes have no interest in you solving the problem because they can indirectly benefit from the current situation. Or there's some so you have to be mindful of that and and you could say, well, just don't deal with those countries. Well, yeah, but I'm trying to help people out of poverty. So if there's a lot of low-income people or people who need our help in that country, I'm going to have to find a way to do it. So the it's not like a black or white stuff. It's, it's more how we're going to get to the objective while staying in the lane and not compromising on values. But the, yeah, the, the U.S. will be a little bit different because in the U.S., you, you are talking value add. Like it's, it's more, the infrastructure is clear. There's already a base level. And then you're adding stuff. In our case, in Africa, and some of the market, like, for example, yeah, well, I'll do a new payment type for Visa. Okay, but that's because you have KYC, everybody's an ID. I go to a place, you know, this country has ID, but a bunch of people don't have the ID. Why? Because when the baby was born in the village, nobody bothered registering the baby. So in theory, if you look on paper, everybody has an ID. In reality, lots of people don't have IDs because not registered, so not in the system. So how do you deal with that? Okay, so now I can't use any of the KYC solutions that have been built in the West because they won't work. I have to build my own face recognition stuff so that I can start onboarding people who don't have the appropriate documentation. Okay, great. Now I got to make it even more complex because since they don't comply to international rules, which you need an ID, then I have to kind of do a closed loop system so they can use it domestically, but they can't access international function because they're not really in breach of compliance. So you have a lot of things that you always have to kind of fine tune the model because you don't know what you don't know. And it doesn't matter how much you think about it. They will, the curveball will come and you just have to address it. So the execution is far more complicated, objectively from a business wise, but turns out that's what I like because that's, it's a bit like cybersecurity, right? You got to figure it out. There's no, like, you got to take the thing apart and and be very creative on, okay, how are we going to solve it? Are we going to bring like iPads in the village? No, that's too costly. Too many villages. 
Oh, okay, we can use the face. Yeah, everybody has a face. Okay, I just need a camera. So then you go iterative, like, you know, and then eventually you come up with a solution that is 10 times better than what was existing in the market anyway. And then that's how you kind of start onboarding the users. And then as you get bigger, it gets easier. And that's how we go back to my initial question about upbringing and what are the types of things you enjoy doing. I mean, it sounds to me like it's an ongoing Rubik's Cube or Lego where you're always unpacking it uh, and rebuilding and trying to find, okay, I'm missing this block. How do I plug in this gap? So we see how everything kind of ties together and what you tend to gravitate towards this type of work because you're constantly problem solving because the situation demands it. Because to your point, it's not just value add. You have to build the entire stack from the ground up and it's a highly heterogeneous environment that you're dealing with. So if we look at the, the business itself and just for listeners to, to try to understand and take a little bit of a step back. Who are your main target customers and markets? What are the dependencies and counterparties in that ecosystem? So B-Mobile Africa essentially is classified as a neobank or a digital bank that focuses on underbanked and unbanked in Africa. That's our tagline. That's, that's what we do. And the mission of the company is to lift 100 million people out of poverty. So lifting people out of poverty actually has nothing to do with banking. Banking is just the tools on how we do that. So the typical customer for us in, in volume, like in numbers, is people who don't have any proper financial services, meaning they have cash or they have some kind of informal. There's this guy in the street that can give me a loan informally, but it's not structured. That's the majority. And then, so if I look at this, it's people living on really, really little money, usually high proportions of women working in the informal economy and essentially doing like kind of small jobs and everything is cash-based. So when we looked and we said, okay, if we want to solve those guys and, and make them better and make the life quality better as a bank, what do we need to do? Well, first things first, you got to, they have to be able to open an account. So we had to build a KYC solution. So using face matching and all that stuff that, okay, now you, 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 you can have an account. Then you have to, what was the, the bottom one? So most, um, usually you go from, Payment-driven proposition, savings-driven proposition, or lending-driven proposition. We went for payment, most difficult, but the, the reason it's so important is because payment data can then be used for a lot of other things and give you additional services. Uh, so we say, okay, what what is a low-income person needs? Peer-to-peer, -peer, so anything I can do with cash, right? I'm paying tomatoes at the market, and maybe I'm sending, I'm in the capital, I'm sending money home to the, the village in like 600 kilometers, still the same currency. And then you, you look and you go like, oh, okay, but all the cross-border activity, all the remittance is actually intra-Africa. So then if you look at payments, you say, oh, it's very interesting. Lots of people overseas in the US, in Europe, sending money home, and it costs X. But then millions, hundreds of millions of Africans actually work in another African country. And then if you look at, okay, if I want to send money between country number one to country number two in Africa, turns out it's all informal or it's very expensive. So we said, well, we will tackle that first because that's the obvious case where if I can save you, I don't know, 10% on the cost of transferring money, that's 10% more in your pocket. So in terms of KPI, very easy to measure success. And then you go like, the only reason this is not built is because there's very little money to, to make on it. So we, we won't be able to make a lot of money, but for us, it solved the mission statement. Therefore, I will then find a way to, to monetize somewhere else. And that's why we do things that the other guys don't do because 
The other guys, they care about acquiring users, not solving the problem. So we started with payment and then ended up adding savings. And now we're adding lending. And the way we build those things, like on the payment, once again, what you can do, you can use Swift. Okay, so we went to talk to Swift and they essentially told us to F off. Um, so we're like, okay, well, if we, you know, if we can use Swift and we can get a price point, well, so be it. We'll just solve the problem by building our own payment infrastructure, which, by the way, I don't recommend. It's a lot of work and it's painful, especially across Africa. But the only reason we, we went through the all extra effort on top of building the bank is to build the, the Lego block is because that's just, the, there's no other way if you want to solve the problem. So it doesn't look good. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of sunk cost. But if you want to solve the problem, there's no other way around it. And so for us to do that, then we use this thing called the blockchain because it was the best technology for it. We use stable coins because then we use AMM, automatic market maker, because essentially we could replace the FX test. So I could do FX services without having like a bunch of FX traders. And eventually we ended up building this payment network, which allows people to move money across 20 African countries at no cost and in real time, which is much better than 12% and you'll get the money to more. So now we have a very compelling value proposition and a bunch of people are coming to use it. Okay, now, then we got step two. How do we monetize that? How do we add value? And that's how incrementally we built it. But we started purely as a payment-driven intra-Africa money movement, which had savings, which now is in lending, consumer only. And then we added companies because companies needed the same service, but we could charge them a lot more money and still be competitive. And that subsidized the rest of the business. So it's a, a combination of technology innovation and business model innovation put it together and essentially you can do low income and turn a profit in the first year. And this is personally what really got me literally fascinated with the story. The fact that, you know, we in the crypto world, we've been looking at these prototypical applications to your point, the primitives, the building blocks, AMMs as a way to swap tokens. I mean, essentially you use the analogy saying that's an FX desk, a foreign exchange desk that's swapping one currency for another on an automated basis. The payment rails, right? The transactional infrastructure that is required behind that. And then you tag on lending primitives. You have ways to actually deploy capital towards productive uses that help others. And you get a real yield, not an incentive yield. You get a real yield for parting with your capital to put it in the economy. For example, a liquidity provider and an AMM will get paid for providing that liquidity, right? And so you take that prototype that we've seen in our developed markets, mostly for speculative use, and you're applying it to a real use case. You're solving payment systems. You're solving the ability for people, as you said, to send money back home, remittances, right? And so uh, for listeners, I think this is very interesting because this is an example of, you know, we've been talking about how crypto is a solution in search of a problem. Well, there you go. You have entrepreneurs out there who are saying, okay, we have all the building blocks. Yes. Is it going to require work? Of course, but we're taking those building blocks. We're applying it to real use cases and guess what? It fits like a glove. Now I understand crypto doesn't necessarily offer, you know, all the peripherals. Like you mentioned KYC, you probably had to do some custom development yourselves, but for the most part, you know, you had at least in the concepts in the base architecture building blocks. And so I'm assuming, and this is a question for you, I'm assuming this eventually, you talk about sunk costs, but eventually though, this would be a much more cost-efficient path forward, right? In terms of delivering your value proposition and your time to market, isn't that faster though than 
going the route of reinventing the wheel? So I don't know if it's faster because there's a lot of things that when we started, when I built, like how are you going to manage, you know, internal key management procedures on the crypto side, right? Because essentially you have got a, a kind of built-in wallet on the back end. How do you manage crypto coming in from a AML, KYC, analytics, proving that the crypto is clean, all that stuff. So it comes with its other problem. But but if you look at, if you were to build a bank tomorrow anywhere in the world, would you build it like HSBC was built or JP Morgan was built or would you build it on DeFi? And the answer is very clear, it's DeFi. And in the case of Africa, what, what you hear often is people are not religious about it. They're not Bitcoin, might see not crypto, but they have no other solution. So that's still a better way. People say, ah, you know, nobody's using Bitcoin for payment. Well, in Africa, they use. What, is it efficient? No, but it's better than what they have. So yeah, there's plenty of other token that can be better for payment. But right now, Bitcoin is very accepted and that's better than no solution. So Africa, because you have a lack of infrastructure and the population is young and everybody's an entrepreneur, like everybody's like what I call street smart there because you have to, that's, that's your environment. That's how you have to survive. Then crypto comes and like, that's a great tool for us to use. And so you see countries like Nigeria where technically crypto is illegal. It's like a hundred million users. Not because they want to double their money because they're using, it's a transactional use case. And so what we've done was just use that piece of technology because it was the better way to solve the problem to prove that actually with that, we can lower the cost, go get guys who are not in the system because they're low income, bring them into the formal system, make their life better and turn a profit that is equal, if not higher than a lot of those VC-backed companies. And then, then we've done we've done our job, right? So people say like, you know, how much have you raised? And we're like, zero. Why don't you ask me about my EBITDA? And they're like, it's a thing we're nuts because we're like, well, it turns out we care about being profitable because that's what proves that you have a real business. We're not here trying to, you know, market, 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 and hope that there is more money. Someone like if you do that and eventually you fail, then you're not going to help anybody. So it was very important, even though it's not sexy to have the right business fundamentals and to do it the right way. When it's your own capital, you can do what's right for the long term as opposed to short term, you know, optic stuff. But it took us, yeah, two years for people to realize, okay, those guys are legit because essentially we just keep killing them on, on financial performance, not, not the fact that we were helping people. That was nice, but just we made more money than them and therefore they start paying attention. But it's uh, sometimes you need to prove the model for people to believe it. So who is your main competition? As I understand it, when you got started, you went out and talked to the banks, banks that operate payment, savings, lending networks, presumably well-established, presumably with strong connections into power and regulators. And, you know, you try to convince those players. What is the answer at the time? Like, why do you think they glossed over the ideas that you were bringing to them? So I think there's a very big difference between what people say to make them feel good, to be on the covers of magazine too, and the reality of it. So if you ask anybody, financial inclusion is very important. If you look in the fact who's actually doing financial inclusion on the ground, very, very few people. The excuse that the bank will give you is it's too expensive for us. We don't have the right IT cost of operation is so high, so we can't really take those guys. Fine. So then if I give you the technology and now it's becoming cost effective, would you do it? And the answer turns out is no, because they actually have no interest. They want to be doing private banking, value add stuff. They don't want to do the work. So that's technically a competitors, but it's not because 
a lot of the guys that are coming to us, they don't have a bank account anyway. And then if they do have a bank account, you have a cost to open the account. You have to maintain X amount of money per month. You have a monthly fee. Like it's so prohibitive. That's why we call them. You have the unbanked and the underbanked. So statistically, they have a bank account, but in practice, they don't. They can't use it. It's just too expensive. That's category number one. Category number two is telecoms. So M-Pesa, very famous use case out of Kenya, 10 plus years old. And telecom was the one when I was a kid that I thought we're going to solve the problem because essentially they have the infrastructure and they have the endpoint and the last mile. They have the whole food chain. The problem is telecom think like telecom, meaning uh, if, if I make it so difficult for you to interact with anything else than me, you're going to stay with me. And I'm going to jack up the price and try to squeeze you out. So essentially, telecom is not working in many countries because it's too expensive. And they don't want to talk to other telecoms because they see this as, if I you have the clients, I don't have it. So I'm trying to block you, which makes the lack of interoperability. Like, I cannot pay you if you're not on the same telecom. So some African, obviously, they have two SIM cards, but it just doesn't work at scale because it's just too expensive. And... It's just not packaged in a way that really helps people. So that's, in theory, what you think it is, but turns out it doesn't really work out. And everybody's in the telecom, even the quote-unquote fintech in the telecom, are essentially revising the model because you'd never be able to turn a profit. And then the last competitor-ish is fintech or you know any kind of tech-driven technology. And you have two kinds of companies. You have the one that, are, that have raised gazillions of dollars, even by US standard, and are essentially more focused on hanging out with celebrities, influencer, and going to concert than actually building the business. So technically they are competitors, but on the ground, they are nowhere to be seen. And all the money goes in marketing and, and they're not really, and eventually they end up going higher in terms of value add and, and income level because they, they don't really care about low income. And then you have guys who will say, okay, I'm going to do just payment in Tanzania, or I'm going to do just lending in Rwanda or, so single product, single market, which are actually good. Like it's not really competitors because we, we do something different, but it is good because they are on the ground and there's actual impact. So they're not at scale, but they are, they are solving the problem. What we are saying is, look, we, we want a unified bank at the scale of the continent. And by the way, if you're a lender in Rwanda or whatever, I will actually provide you my payment facility. Don't build it. I'm, it's not your job. Focus on lending. And we are trying to grow the pie as opposed to take a slice of the pie. Sounds cliche because everybody's saying it, but that's really our business model. And that's why we've been able to grow so fast because we've, like, if you had a company which was 100% competitor to Mo that will come to me, I'll still partner with them because the mission that we're trying to solve is far greater than, you know, our company. And you could have 50 companies like B-Mobile Africa and everybody will be over a 10 billion market cap. The market is just that big. Like there's literally nothing. Everything is to be built. So our view is we have it. We've proven the model. And now most of what we do is partnership. So we talk to banks. We talk to central banks. We talk to telecom. We talk to, you know, fried chicken food chain, which have a bunch of outlets and can do cash in, cash out and use our payment system. We talk to gas station in the middle of like West Africa desert because they could be a cash in, cash out point and they could serve users that we can. So we try to be, you know, we don't look at people as competitors. We look at them as someone in the checkboard. And then we always try to find how can we add more value. Sometimes we can rely on someone else's distribution. Sometimes they can rely on, on our rails because it provides a service that they don't provide and vice versa. 
but it's so it makes it very complex to run the business because it's not a very singly focused it's more what is best for the customer which varies by market but we think that's the right way to eventually tackling the issue so it sounds to me like there's almost dual path to market one is and through mostly as you said like organic word of mouth, which at some point you're going to need to do a little bit more marketing. At the same time, what I'm hearing from you, it's, it's almost like Neil Bank in a box. It's the building block, slap a white label on. You could go to partners and have them use what you've spent time building in engineering. You know that it works because you're doing it for your own brand. It's almost like I'm thinking like an alchemy for, for bank in a box or like the service layer, the delta to make it fully turnkey out of the box to other well-established brands is probably not that far off. Am I correct in my thinking here? That is correct. When we built the bank, digital bank, we had essentially this infrastructure, the Lego blocks, vertically integrated in the bank. And that's what gave us a massive advantage over everybody else. And then we said, look, we've proven that you can make money doing low income. Now, how to reach more people? So I can raise a bunch of money and try to be everything to everybody. Well, I can say, Look, I've proven the model. Let me spin out the infrastructure and offer that infrastructure to others who have their own clients, who have their own market expertise to then benefit from what we've built and then make the pie bigger. So yes, in some markets, we are the bank because there's no other banks. In some markets, we don't want to be the bank. We actually want the local bank or the local players to do what they do best, which is you know, opening the account, the relationship with the clients, and we'll provide the backend payment savings, whatever you want, so they can offer a service that is price competitive and go get a bunch of customers that they don't currently have. Do you see potential beyond Africa globally, beyond those borders? I, I do think there's, there's definitely global potential. I think Africa 54 country is, is kind of like a, a life's work. But, you know, we, we are, I, I'll, I'll tell you, we get approached very commonly. Caribbean, same situation. Bunch of small countries with small population which are economically not viable for the big banks. So you have Latin America, Bunch of countries, bunch of people with a bunch of different currencies and different regulatory environment. You have Central Asia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, all the stuff, which is very not well served. And then you have anything related to like, you know, Pacific, Kiribati, Solomon Island, Tonga, all those countries, same, very small population, so may not be economically viable for big players. Yet, because of that, then you have a lot of low income, which really shouldn't be the case. But for us, it's like, Africa has an expertise. It's already massive. Now, if someone wants to do it in Solomon Island, we'll happily license them the technology and let them run it. So we, we don't say, no, we won't do it. We'll say, we, we can't be the one running it because there's only 24 hours in a day, but we are more than happy to provide even our infrastructure for free and we'll have some kind of revenue share. As long as that technology is used in large part to do low income, we will support it. Focus is key, right? And you can't spread yourself too thin, even though there is the potential. So, you know, shifting a little bit as we get closer to the end of this podcast, I know that I could go on for another few hours. It's so interesting. Going back to crypto itself and, and DeFi, what do you think, if anything, needs to change in the digital asset space for it to thrive? It's been a difficult 2022. What I'm seeing now is the emergence of, you know, new ethos pitches or value propositions, both on the trading business side of things to builders and applications who want to say, we are not like that. We are not the FTXs. We are not those CFI lenders that took your, your money. 
crypto does not necessarily equal bad behavior. But what do you think needs to change? You've been in your own world. You've used blockchain technology. You've used DeFi, but obviously you're pretty plugged in. You watch what's going on. You understand the long-term impact of the technology continuing to evolve and develop because you're, you're making a bet on it, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, I will say because we operate a bank, a neobank, which is in essentially 20 market and is fully built on DeFi, we, we have a pretty good view on it and we have some, you know, some tech on it. So if you say for 2023, what is the one thing that we should do about DeFi that will have the most impact? For me, make it easy to use. DeFi is still built by techies for techies. It's way too complex for the average person to use. Nobody's going to spin out the wallet, do the key. Like, it's just too complex. Connect, approve. Like, it's just too different than what the average person knows. It's great for techies. It's great for people who have an understanding. But if you really want to get it mainstream, the ease of use has to be number one. The second thing is we need far more transparency on what things are. Everything is driven by hype. Because, of course, people are like, oh, this guy's in this project, whatever. And people don't realize that all this hype is actually people making money out of this. It's, it's like all those influencers, it's their business to sell you stuff and not, you know, they're not a really good trader themselves. We see it because we know a lot of hedge funds and asset managers. The good traders, they're not on TikTok. They're trading. So the access to reliable information and that, I think, will, will remove a lot of the bad actors or at least whatever is left. And the last thing is really, we do need some kind of regulation, but we need the right kind of regulation, primarily because this is the key to getting institutional money in the system, which will take it to the next stage. But no regulation to me is better than bad regulation. And I've dealt with a bunch of central banks and regulators around the world. Uh, outside of the Swiss guy, which I think are, are pretty ahead still, very hard to find a government that truly understands it and they that understand the downside of badly regulating it because crypto is crypto like if you do it bad people are going to use it a different way somewhere else and so i would say ease of use proper reliable information with no bias if it's possible and regulation but in the right amount you're sort of dealing with those trade-offs where you don't want to kill innovation you don't want to allow people to optimize towards the wrong outcomes. You know, when you think about policy, it's it's always the danger. This all makes sense. And I, I tend to agree with this. You know, one of the things that I've seen over the years, really in the different market cycles, is how impactful has it been on constituents, right? And so the fact that crypto really hasn't gone big enough and embedded enough actually as a byproduct of it not necessarily being regulated in some of the largest financial markets, such as the US, it sort of kept it at arm's length. But you know, the more you see the technology being used in the way that you're applying, it's actually touching people with their bank accounts, with the real use cases. And so I think that can help spur the right regulation when people are using it. And let's face it, politicians and policymakers respond to what their constituents demand. And until it actually touches real use cases in a way that's impactful, I think you're going to see policymakers focusing on other topics and other matters that, that are really relevant to their constituents. My final question to you is, Sitting from where you are, you built a cybersecurity business. You're now embarking on your second journey with a very ambitious agenda, but you're executing. 
what do you feel like you haven't accomplished yet? You know, I know the metrics. I obviously know that you have these very high level goals that you're, however, day to day, when you think about what motivates you, what is it that you still want to be able to look back and say, I've done this or I've accomplished this? Well, I think, look, the, the mission of the company is to lift 100 million people out of poverty. So are we at 100 million now? So I guess as far as I'm concerned, I'm not done. And if it takes five years, 10 years, so be it. I mean, until it's done, it's not done. I think in the more general terms, I'm looking at it as how, you know, as someone who has a certain kind of value system, I'm trying to say, how, how do we build businesses, which is our skill set, building companies that that do make the world a better place. I mean, it's a bit cliche, but what I'm saying is if everybody looked at it as I want to make money, but I also want to, you know, do something a little bit better than when I took it, then eventually I think a society will, will be far more advanced. And so that's, that's what I hope to do. Meaning our, our bank is the first way to do this. It could be eventually launching a fund attached to the bank to finance this kind of project, which are, well, I want to double bottom line, but I want it to, because I do think crypto as, as a very high um, and blockchain in general will have, will play a very, very outsized role in emerging market compared to Western market. People don't realize it because they, but if you walk on the street of Lagos, it, it's obvious to you. So I, I look at DeFi and the blockchain rail the same way an American may look at Google and Amazon. To me, that's the infrastructure of tomorrow. And what it will become in the future, we, we can't even comprehend yet. So to me, anything that I can do to help that and link it to a positive outcome, that to me is success. And so it could be building more businesses. It could be financing a new uh, a new generation. It could be like, you want to talk about another problem to tackle? Education in Africa. We don't have enough coders. Let's train them. There's lots of people. People are very happy to learn if you give them the right training material, but people don't want to do that, right? And I can tell you someone can live very well in Africa with $2,000. You cannot live in New York with $2,000. So the, the, it's better for the employer because it's cheaper. It's better for the person because they live better. And if you don't create economic value in those emerging markets, you're going to have a bunch of people dying in the Mediterranean crossing in search of better opportunities. So it goes far beyond the money piece. It's that it is important to create better society. And I hope to play a small part in that. For now in Africa, maybe somewhere else after. There's no better way than to part on what I think is not only an upbeat statement, it's ambitious, but with a purpose. I found that just learning about your journey and what you're trying to accomplish, what you're working towards every day just stands out. I talk to a lot of people every day and that was a very, very unique story. So I want to thank you very much for spending some time with us. I hope listeners will enjoy this. I hope people will learn from this and see how they can apply it to their own worlds. I hope it spurs new entrepreneurial ideas. I hope people reach out to you because there's an awful lot to learn about how you've gone about it. So Cedric, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And wishing you good luck in the, in the continuing months and years to build your business. Yeah, thanks for having me. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. 